What do you mean, missing, she had said when the phone call had come that afternoon. She'd been distracted by the kids tumbling their bags in the door ahead of her, trying to get her earplugs in to hear the call properly. It appears Mr Elliot has disappeared from the mine site at the Golden Ark. Geotech have confirmed this with us. But he's due back in a few days. Couldn't he just be on his way home? We don't believe so. Essie called from in front of the open fridge. What is that at eight? Mim had frowned, pointed to her earbuds, turned away. Why am I hearing this from you? She had tried not to raise her voice. There are ways to speak to the department. We're working closely with Geotech. Protocol, Mrs Elliot, on foreign investment sites, you'll understand. But how can he be missing? He's chipped. Can't you just geolocate him? They had ignored her question, asked if they could send someone around. She had asked again, but there was nothing they could tell her. She'd pictured the grey SUV parked in the driveway, the white concentric rings of the department logo, the faces behind the curtains in the street. No, thank you, she had said. We'll be fine. You'll let us know if he makes contact? As if they wouldn't already know. Of course, she had replied. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. And welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis, and today we're joined by Kate Mildenhall talking about her new book, The Mother Fault, which pairs a horrifying vision of a not too distant Australia with a gripping story of motherhood and protection. When Mim's husband goes missing while on assignment in Indonesia, the totalitarian government, known only as the department, begins questioning Mim and threatening to take her children away. Fearing for their safety, she uproots her life and goes on the run, risking everything to find her husband and herself. Kate, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Max. So I'm going to come out right at the gate with the question you'll probably be a lot, asked a lot over the next few months. How does it feel to have written a wonderful dystopian novel over the past three years, having to release it in a world that seems to be getting closer to a dystopia every day? Max, I can only say that is very, very odd. Mm. Uh, certainly as it started, I, I suppose I'm getting a bit more used to the idea of it now, but... When I was reading the news in the first lockdown and, you know, who even knows what time is anymore, but in the, in the first few months, certainly of it happening in Australia, and I was reading things about the, um, you know, the COVID safe app and we're all in this together and, and the ways that we're going to move through this challenging time together. Mm. And I was literally reading words that I'd already written in my book in terms of that kind of um, bureaucratic speak that comes out to... Uh, quell the fear of the masses. And so that was really kind of um, alarming in a sense in terms of just the the themes that I looked at. And then like everyone in the book industry would know, it's also just a really strange way <laughs> to release to release a book. But it's it's been so exciting to be able to get to so many things um, for other people's books coming out. So I think that there are some silver linings for us in mm. the book world too. And The Motherfall is definitely a dystopian or a speculative fiction novel, but it's also a very introspective novel about motherhood and parenthood as well. Why did you want to explore these two themes in tandem? One of the things that I was really thinking about 
when I began this novel was the tension between how I was feeling as a as a mum with young kids and the everyday that my life involved. Mm. So looking after them and, and cooking for them and thinking about what they needed. At the same time as I was watching things happening in the world where there were particularly women you know, going to great lengths to keep their children safe. And that idea that some days I wanted to chuck my kids in the bin because they were being such rat bags. And yet I knew that I would, if push came to shove, kill for them, mm. uh, was, was that tension that I really wanted to explore. So to do that, I needed to put this kind of everyday mum who I really related to, which is Mim in the book, I needed to put her into a really difficult, extraordinary kind of situation. And to, to do that, I had to push forward, I suppose, a little bit uh, mm. into a future that now seems very, very close. The book is in some ways a bit of a departure from your debut Skylarking, uh, which took place in the 1880s. But at the same time, that novel sort of had a core theme of a character being torn between different kinds of love in their life. What fascinates you about that idea? Oh, I wish I knew, Max. I'm just, <laughs> I'm currently working, um, I've just started work on my third novel and I'm like, are you serious, Mildred Hall? Are you going to try a, like, a love triangle again? Because mm. obviously I am in some way obsessed. I mean, the tension uh, in those kind of situations and the tension in the mother fault, which is um, kind of looking at, Mim's self-love, her acceptance of herself as yeah. as a mother at this point in her life, but also, and a, and a dear friend, um, Penny Russon, who did a very early generous read for me, said, Kate, this is a love story between Mim and her children. And and that's what I really wanted to come, to come through as well. So uh, about Mil, Mim finding herself. In terms of at a, at a plot level, having, you know, the various kind of romantic love interests that Mim has is just a gift always mm. for plot and for story. So I love kind of playing with that that tension as well. It seems very much to be a uh, her reckoning with her past as well and her past kind of coming back to haunt her in a lot of ways, but also it's a past that, considering the world that she lives in now, is a past that was probably much better than her present now. Yeah, well, I think too, I certainly felt, and I know, you know, not only am just my talking to friends and other writers who are mothers, but um, in all the reading that I've done as well, women talking about their life when they became parents or, or carers for children, that it can almost feel like your whole previous life just <laughs> disappears mm -hmm. and it's not there as well. And so that was part of why I was also so interested in looking at geology as kind of this overall metaphor in the book. It was Mim being able to recognise that all those layers of her herself and her past she needs to draw on them to make it through this kind of uh, extraordinary situation that she's in that draws me to one of my later questions which is that there's a sort of environmental undercurrent running throughout the novel that ties in really nicely with that theme of motherhood and sacrifice was that like a deliberate thing that you were trying to draw on well in terms of the in terms of the kind of environmental issues they were things that really stressed me out so mm. so looking at the mining in indonesia and the effects of that as well as this kind of overall sense of climate crisis and the things that are changing in this world i had to kind of push forward i suppose in my head i was thinking it's kind of 20 years from now but also if things had kind of gone to shit a little bit earlier for mm. us in the past five years and so i i, I really was interested in, in exploring those 
ideas. I did a lot of reading and research about the impact of mining in, in places around the world, but particularly in Indonesia and PNG. And the also the impact that that has on families and the people who live close to those mm. those places. And so the idea that, uh, and, and many of the activists, environmental activists in Indonesia uh, are women, are local women who working at a really grassroots level. So it's, it's and, and of course, Mim's got that past as well, which is to do with, with fracking on her own land and her kind of reckoning with that. And if she's a, a child of the land, her you know parents are farmers, where that that plays for her again i don't i don't have any answers about any of it i think the tensions in all those areas are are what's so interesting Mm. to explore well in terms of dystopian worlds some readers have compared your vision of a one-party australia to the totalitarian state of gilead in a handmaid's tale was that a inspiration or were there any other sort of dystopian worlds that you you looked to when creating your own i you know, I'm one of the many people who read Handmaid's Tale many years ago and then um, kind of fell deeply into the um, television series. And what I loved in revisiting the television series too is that kind of threshold uh, and and how thin the line is between the normal world and where it flips into things going mm. wrong. And that's really that space and, and it's a difficult space to write in because you can get things you know, hugely wrong, especially when a pandemic comes along. And I've felt this. I don't know if you've had a similar feeling, Max, during the COVID situation, that moment where you think, is this it? Like, is this the moment that I should be starting to panic? Or is, mm-hmm. is this the moment that I should have my bags packed or, you know, be like hiding my family somewhere? So that that idea of how generally we're well behaved and we do what the government tells us. So that was that kind of spot. And I think that that's done really well in the television series of Handmaid's Tale. I did really take um, Atwood's idea that everything that happens in in the world of Gilead has happened before historically. I took that on board and I'm and so to build this dystopia, I really drew on things that are happening around the world now or who have happened, which have happened in the past. So, you know, disappearances and how disappearances are used as a tool of totalitarianism, the idea of surveillance and, and how that yeah. is used. I took those from situations in the, in the world. My shelves up here are filled with also um, people like James Bradley's writing, you know, books like Clade, books that are being written now in this kind into a very close kind of a, a future. Mm, have you read uh, Ghost Species, his um, book that he wrote this year? Because I, I found a lot of parallels between that and this being sort of exploration of motherhood against the backdrop of a, of a decaying world, which is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually kind of spooky reading, mm. um, reading that because I think too, I mean, uh, Alice Robinson, who wrote The Glad Shout and I have talked about this um, many times because we wrote those books, uh, kind of writing them at the same time. Mm. They've come out at different times and didn't know each other at the time we were writing, but both have ended up writing books about um, women and their families, you know, like women trying to protect their children in a time of, of great challenge in this dystopic kind of future. And we really came up with the idea that it's just been pulled out of the mud, the subconscious mud mm. that we're all kind of putting our fears into at the time, especially in lockdown, I've felt this sense so strongly that as you become more interior and you're spending all that time with your family and you're just in one place, it's the essential stuff that comes out, right? Mm. Like, what do I need to do? What am I here for? Well, I'm here to protect the people that I love. So that's been really interesting thinking about it. I'm glad the book 
was already written before this all happened so that I didn't have to kind of like dive into it and start thinking about it in all different ways. The epigraph of the book contains a segment of a poem by Gwen Harwood titled Mother Who Gave Me Life. What was your your reasoning for including that poem in the book? I am such a massive Harwood fan and my uh, maybe my year 10 and 11 literature teacher um, Hermione Burns I still remember she taught Harwood to us and I just one of the very vivid things becoming a mother has been that I read Harwood obviously as a you know 16 year old girl Mm. and was so struck by poems like both Mother Who Gave Me Life and and things like uh, In the Park which which talks of this kind of suburban wife who has uh, kind of watching her life go by and they struck me then and to read them again as a parent um, it, it was really profound and and I think the idea also that mothers particularly, but in general, women through time, handing on their their knowledge and their power to their to their daughters was something that was really powerful. And in the relationship between Mim and Essie, uh, I I really wanted to show that. Mm. I have two two daughters, uh, and and they you know provided much inspiration and fodder for for this book in many different ways you know that that's kind of for them as well Mm. and you mentioned essie mim's daughter and i thought it was a really interesting choice that she's an 11 year old girl and she's on the cusp of puberty and in that way she kind of acts as like a foil for the development of mim as a mother uh was that the kind of thinking behind essie's character yeah that's really interesting thank you for reading that so closely um i i wanted her to be in a state that was both absolutely as you say on the cusp childlike and yet pushing back against her her mother as well and also that sense of her knowingness you know essie kind of seems just to know all the time what's Mm. going on for Mim. kind of sees through her the artifice and also the protective kind of artifice that she puts up saying constantly everything's going to be okay everything's going to be okay which is something that all parents and adults will know that experience of holding back your own fears and terrors Mm. to try and let the kids know that everything's going to be okay even when they are absolutely aware of the fact that it is not I, I did really want to play in that zone and I suppose a little bit like what I did do with Kate and Harriet in Skylarking, it's just so interesting to me watching young women really at that time in their life. And I, I work with kids too in, in writing sessions and as a teacher. And I just um, think there is such fire and strength and and knowledge at that time too. Mm-hmm. And for Mim to see that reflected in her daughter and for it to kind of wake her up is really important. Going back to that idea of paternal and maternal warmth that we were talking about with the poem extract, I thought that it contrasted very interestingly with the title being The Motherfold, which is quite a almost accusatory kind of title. Where did that title come from? It totally is accusatory. That's a great word. And I'm going to steal that and use that when I'm asked this again, because because when I first, it it wasn't always called that. Hmm. And when I first kind of arrived at it I was like yes this is it and I told my own mum and she said oh you can't call it that like no <laughs> gosh you can't almost like the idea of putting mother and fault together was just absolutely an mm. accusation that she felt readers couldn't handle but I just going further into it and even having some readers now and booksellers kind of reflect back their own thoughts about it which is far more than I intended it to be the obvious 
ideas around it being a, a fault line and with the yeah. geological kind of references are there. That idea that you can be a mother to a fault. Mim tries so hard to live up to this idea of what she thinks she should be as a mother and her kind of turning up at the school gate and her kind of ideas about what other women think of her and mm. how she's doing her mothering. And then the other idea that it is, of course, all your fault, which is what mothers think all the time. Everything that goes wrong with my children in the world around me is is all my fault. So there were just so many levels to play with that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't resist really in the end. It's interesting looking at that compared to Ben's character, the husband, and how he's completely not present in the narrative at all, but the entire plot is is actually his fault in a way. Yeah, and, you know, it was really hard to know how to write Ben and where to put him, mm. really, because, you know, I've written this book, you know, it's taken me four years, I've written it many times over with many variations on on what happens to Ben, and he is the driving force. I mean, he, he the book opens with his disappearance and Mimi's trying to find him and trying mm. to get to him and she loves him and she relies on him. Uh, she's had a really tough time since the birth of the kids and she's, she's used to him being there to kind of um, lead her and, and show her what's, what's, what's going to happen next. And so him not being there is completely uh, displaces her, but it was really hard because I had to know that my reader readers would come with me uh, and believe that Mim was going to, to find him and mm. and you know I know that Mim's going to do that but I had to I had to make sure that my my readers came with me on that too and you know he's got he's got lots of fabulous qualities Ben does and he is doing something that he truly utterly believes in but as Mim says and this isn't a spoiler but you know maybe she could have been a hero too but she was picking up the kids yeah exactly it's that it's that kind of idea where she's mim has made the the best of this shitty situation that she's been given but it's still the way that she's dealt with it is her fault so to speak yeah sailing does play a very large role in the book as well with mim going on a sailing journey with her children from australia to indonesia why did you include that section did you is it from a personal love of sailing or is it something else it was not from a personal love of sailing. In fact, I had to go and uh, go sailing to, to mm. get that. What I knew is that Mim had to leave Australia by boat. And so I did a bunch of Googling of how you might do that. And, and while I was doing that, I happened to cross this website advertising a, a yacht rally that left from Darwin and went to Ambon in Indonesia. Mm. And they were looking for crew in a way that only writers do in their flights of fancy at 11 o'clock at night while they are researching and writing their books I sent off an email saying that uh, I had absolutely no experience sailing but that I was very enthusiastic and keen and I would love to crew on one of the boats as part of my research mm. uh, and I didn't think I'd hear anything of it but a, a couple of weeks out they called me and said you know someone had pulled out and someone needed it another crew member so I went up to Darwin and jumped on this boat with with five other people, I think. One woman, she and I were hot bunking, so sharing the same space when we were on an off shift. And we sailed to Indonesia. And what was brilliant about it is that I, you know, I spent a lot of time on the coast and I, you know, it's very hard for me not to write the ocean into into my writing. But I'm not very scared of the ocean. Mm. And that's foolish because I should be. And so I wanted to have the experience of being out 
on the open ocean. And and my word, I did get scared. I thought I was going to die at one point, which I clearly wasn't. And I think they, everyone else on the boat just thought that I was ridiculous mm. for even. And I was kept it under control. I didn't want anyone to think I was hysterical. But but it was extraordinary, Max, just for the the sensory experience of it and the stories that those they were, they were mostly much older men uh, and they'd been sailing for a long time and they just told the most fantastic stories mm. and then arriving in Ambon as well. And it, it was, it's an island that's not necessarily visited a lot for tourism. Um, some Australians go there because there's a um, prisoner of war camp there that Australians were interned at. Other than that and some yachties, no one really necessarily goes there. Uh, and so they're trying to build the tourism industry and it's the most beautiful island, but they just pulled out all stops to show us everything as well. So mm. meeting the people there, it just allowed me to really sink into writing that section of the book and I'm so glad I did it I I came off the boat thinking that's it I want to sail now from now on but um a couple of the the yachties that I met said that if you are the one into sailing and your partner's not and my partner is not into sailing um it's not going to work so I've left the sailing dreams to the side now but it was a great experience. Yeah, the, the sailing segment is such a fascinating, but also extremely tense and anxious part of the book, not only because, you know, they're escaping the country, but also because you're constantly worrying the whole time if something is going to happen to Mim's children. And if they're, yeah. one of them is going to go overboard or something like that. It's such like a very, very tension-filled segment of the book. And I couldn't obviously take my kids on that uh, on that experience, but I did think about how I would be dealing with them all the time because I was scared that I yeah. was going to go over the edge. And and also it's really tempting at times, you know, to dive in. Like it looks beautiful, especially when you're just sailing really slowly. It looks gorgeous in there. But I did take my kids out. A, a friend um, took us on his boat just in the bay and that was enough. That experience, like being on the on a pier with kids mm. that just constant like come back from the edge. And it's, and it's so small. It really is a very small space. So that idea too, that you are just constantly living in the presence of these other people, aware of what's going on, dealing with other people's energy. Um, that was huge and, and really useful for tension in the book as well. Mm, you, you really capture the, that sense of just looking after these little beings that seem determined to kill themselves almost. Yeah. And it's like Mim has enough on her plate, but you're, she also has to worry about these two kids. It's a very, very well-written part of the book. Oh, thank you, Max. It's funny too. And I, and I suppose that parents or people caring for children right now might, might really relate to that idea that on a technical level for the book, they were always there. Like... <laughs> I ended up having to send them outside lots of times to like kick a ball outside, which is what we do as parents when yeah. we want to have a conversation because writing a book in which a woman is fleeing with her children requires that she is always with her children. So, um, you know, that, that was great in the way that it was a constant reminder that I couldn't just get ahead of myself and start, you know, going off on a flight of fancy of all the things that she was doing because yeah. she wasn't because ultimately every minute of every day, what she was doing was looking after them. Well, for my final question, you mentioned a bit earlier that you are working on your third book already. Are there any hints on what it might be focusing on? Because your first was back in the past. Second one was sort of in the future. What's happening with the third one? So I can tell you, I can tell you that it, I am going um, back into the past again. So okay. there is no rhyme nor reason to yeah. to each project and how it comes to me. It, it, it was born out of some research that I was doing. And I'm currently, to give you a slight hint, I'm currently looking up at all the um, pictures that I've got 
up on my wall as inspiration and I've got some old pictures of a meatworks and a picture of Marlon Brando. So hopefully that um, okay. <laughs> that, that helps. That sounds very interesting. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Mm-hmm.